Hello and welcome again to another edition of Locked In Science, where we are once again locked in, but still bringing you all the science that we can fit into half an hour. Who are we? Well, I'm Stu, and later in the show, I will be talking about um, probably one of the biggest science news stories this week is the progress on a potential vaccine for uh, SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that's causing COVID-19 to be keeping us locked in here. Um, it is big, very uh, exciting, Stu. It is. It is really exciting. Um, they're, they're actually moving into testing and they've published some results on that. But also wanted to briefly talk about uh, a little bit of observational science, which has come to the attention of doctors and medical researchers working around maternity wards around the world in um, in neonatal ICU units, where they have noticed that there's very, very few premature babies being born in lockdown not a lot of detail but it's interesting to talk about it anyway it's sort of an experiment that nobody would have dared to ask for permission to do but here we are and making the best of times science exactly right life gives us lemons we make lemonade (laughs) we we Um, research lemons and make the best (laughs) lemonade and claire what have you got for us on the show this week uh well Stu, i um I wanted to move a little bit away from coronavirus news this week. Um, so I've decided to look where, oh, like away from my mobile phone, away from my smartphone, away from the updates on the live uh, blogs and um, up into the stars and into space. Um, there's actually been quite a lot of uh, space science that's been happening while everyone's been in lockdown. And um, and I actually mean that. The, the scientists and the researchers who have been working on this stuff have been working from home and making huge discoveries. Um, Mars missions have been launched. Uh, we've been finding out stuff about planets that we didn't know before and stuff about our own sun that we didn't know before. So um, I'm taking a break to bring you three stories of space science this week. Amazing. So there's only two of us here, but we've got a total of five <laughs> stories. This should we be do. a whole lot we of do. fun. And of course, as a um, as a note to Chris, who isn't, um, isn't on the show this week, who normally does all of the space and astrophysics stories. Um, so I guess, you know, Heavy is the um, heavy is the space science crown, but I'm um, going to bring the stories this week. Excellent. Well, stay tuned for all of those coming up later in the show. Now, we've mentioned on the show before that Science is still working to answer questions, even during these times of COVID-19. And obviously, a lot of medical scientists are working on vaccines against the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes the illness. Um, But there's obviously a lot of other research going on as well. And much of it, or some of it at least, as we've mentioned on other shows this year, has been a result of observations during lockdown recommendations that many governments have put in place as a response. Um, So I'm going to come back to a story about that a little bit later. But first, I wanted to hit the big vaccine news that uh, Mm. was um, coming out over the course of this week. 
Uh, big news of the week is that a collaboration between AstraZeneca and researchers at Oxford University have had a reasonable amount of success. So they have begun testing on a vaccine called AZD-1222, which is really not the catchiest <laughs> name for the coolest vaccine around, if that's what it turns <laughs> out to be. Um, but they have been um, giving people doses of this vaccine, healthy human volunteers, and they've published preliminary findings in The Lancet, which is you know one of the top-level medical journals in the world. So the results so far suggest there's minimal side effects, which is one of the things they're looking for in human trials um, from injecting the vaccine. Most importantly, uh, it shows what the authors describe as a robust immune response, which is, you know, um, no faint praise coming from medical researchers. Um, so the results were published from a stage one and two trial combined where 1,077 healthy adults between the ages of 18 and 55 years were given an injection of the vaccine or an injection of a comparable vaccine. So it was a double-blind um, trial that they were actually doing here. So there was a, you know, a, not a placebo because it was an actual um, active vaccine. It was didn't do nothing. It just protected against something which isn't the right. greatest risk in the world right now. Mm -hmm. um, so after comparisons, they showed that people who were injected with the uh, AZD-1222 vaccine showed a fourfold increase in antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus one month after injection. So 95% of the participants who got this injection showed that uh, primary immune response. They also found that all participants who received the new vaccine had an induced T-cell response, which peaked after 14 days and was maintained for two months after the delivery of this new vaccine. So just to remind me, the T-cells, what the T-cells are? The T-cells are part of the adaptive immune system, which help the antibodies or actually help the B cells which make the antibodies so the the two parts work together um, what they did suggest was that the T cell response in um, COVID-19 may be the most important immune response that we have so this vaccine boosts the T cell production and that seems to be what helps people recover from COVID-19 uh, as opposed to the antibody uh, reaction that people have. So um, they have actually found in other research that T-cell responses are strong in asymptomatic people who have shown that they have low levels of antibodies, but they don't have many symptoms either. So they're fighting off the disease, but not by producing heaps of antibodies, right. but by producing heaps of T-cells, mm. which is an interesting observation. Um now, the trials are ongoing, so the same cohort of participants, they'll be checked for antibodies at day 184 and day 364 after these initial 
injections were given. So at six months and at 12 months, they're going to check up on them and make sure or at least evaluate whether they've still got these immune responses happening because that's an important feature of knowing how long this immunity might last in the population once we've, you know, once people get uh, the vaccine. Um, they also, in the same trial, um, they gave 10 participants two doses of the vaccine a month apart. And even though the numbers are a lot smaller because it's only 10 people, um, what they found was even stronger antibody and T-cell responses after the second dose. So the authors are saying at this point, maybe two doses is the way to go. We'll give you one, we'll give you another one after a month and you get an extra Ah, oh, like, um, <clears throat> like a booster that you get with, I think it's like hepatitis B, you have to do a couple of boosters or something like that. There's, there's a few vaccines that work that way. They sort of prime up the immune system and then give it another dose of the same medicine, I guess. <laughs> um, the, they also noticed that the second dose resulted in less adverse reactions. So the adverse reactions to the vaccine, in pretty standard stuff for vaccines, it was things like um, pain at the injection site. You know, you get a needle stuck in your arm, it can hurt. Um, yeah minor discomfort, chills, minor fevers, minor muscle aches and, and headaches mm -hmm. and things like that, which are all standard responses to vaccines pretty much across the board that right. doctors will look out for when they administer these. So sounds like a very positive news on that vaccine front. Meanwhile, there are 150 vaccine candidates in development. It's an incredible number. What an incredible amount of resources it's, being put to the vaccine effort right now. Unprecedented. Absolutely. <laughs> it's an amazing... And, you know, people are working on different um, approaches to the problem as well. So this one seems to be working very well, but other different approaches to, um, you know, reducing the infectiveness of the virus and, and stopping it, making people sick... Uh, are also underway. And is this one of the first ones to actually go into humans, to be given to humans? Look, it's still early days, but obviously these these this trial has been running for two months already. So this would have started back in um, May, mm. I think, and they're publishing the results now. So um, it probably was one of the early ones to be uh, introduced into human test subjects um it's still early days as i said but um there's also i was reading there's a chinese vaccine um which which they're happy to give to their military but they won't give it to the general public so, so what what that means in terms of how effective it is i'm not entirely sure but that it may just be that you know they can they can um drum up volunteers so to speak from the military easier they can get them from the from the general public. Um, but that, but that's another possible candidate. And, you know, as I said, there's 150 other mm. potential vaccines in development all over the world as well. Um, this, this one has actually already got deals with several world governments. If, if it's successful, they've kind of pre-sold a whole bunch of the vaccine. So it's actually already in production. If it, if it turns out to be, what they're looking for, they can ship it almost immediately. Does that mean 
they've got the capability to be able to mass produce it already. They're sort of working out how to do that before they've got the science behind whether it actually works and is safe for people to use. Well, yeah, they know know what what it takes to make the vaccine. Um, and they are already ramping up production. They've already pre-sold, I think, a million doses wow. to various governments around the world. So, you know, they're they're ready to to jump on that mass production bandwagon as soon as they, um, you know, have have the final results from these trials. Um, they they so various depends who you ask, but um, one of the scientists was saying, you know, could could actually be out in the general population by the end of the year. So that's kind of a relatively short timeline. We'll see what happens with that. Pay close attention. Um, As I mentioned earlier, some of the findings during lockdowns from medical researchers have been very interesting. They're not the kind of things that would have been discovered easily without large numbers of the population being locked down under these restrictions. So one of the surprising things is that maternity doctors in some parts of the world started to notice after a couple of months of lockdown that there were fewer premature babies being born. So it did take a couple of months because you only, in in most places, you only get sort of between three and ten premature babies per thousand births. So you've got to have quite a large number of births to Mm -hmm. notice that there's Mm -hmm. not any or there's much fewer um, premature babies. But doctors in Denmark started to notice this, and doctors in Ireland started to notice that the numbers of premature babies going by birth weight, which is a good indicator between different hospitals of premature babies. They have slightly different classification systems depending on what country you're looking at, but low birth weight is a good indicator that a baby is premature. and that had started to drop away dramatically this year um, since uh, the start of 2020. The same sort of drop turned up in hospitals in Netherlands, the same sort of drop in Canada, wow. the same sort of drop in hospitals in Australia. So the cause of this is not exactly clear. There's you know, been suggestions, maybe it's because pregnant women are having more rest because they're not having to go to work and commute and yeah, right. you know, all of those other things. They're basically staying yeah, home. Yeah. Some people have suggested uh, it may be due to lower air pollution or could be any number of environmental factors that they're... It could be anything, but it would have to be something to do with, you know, that something that was consistent with the environment and what everybody was doing. If it's happening in Europe and Australia... Um, and in different places, right? Yeah, I think, you know, that's that's one of the things they will have to look at because it's not happening everywhere either. So oh, some places okay. have noticed a, a really marked decline and other places are saying, oh, it looks about normal. Right. It's about what we would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things is that the doctors in um, in Ireland and in Denmark were saying, well, actually, this is the opposite of what we were expecting. We would have thought that the increased you know stress of being locked down would cause more premature births but in fact it's the other way around so partly it's because maybe they don't understand why babies are born prematurely a lot of the time like some some cases it's very obvious other cases they just sort of go ah we don't really know 
why that happened. Um, so this is a it's an interesting test for uh, for those doctors to try and investigate it a bit further. So the doctors in Denmark and Ireland have actually teamed up officially to investigate this, and they will be sort of pooling their resources and and trying to figure out exactly what's going on and hopefully um you know help make pregnancy safer for everyone in the future without having to stay home across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in science Okay, so this week, Stu, I've decided to look out to space and the stars to give me a bit of perspective. Um, And I'm going to tell you three stories of space science that I hope will uplift, well, my spirits, if not yours, and allow us to wonder, like I am now, how in the hell people are sending rockets into space while working from home? And me, you know, humble old me, I'm still struggling trying to connect to my work Z drive. Yeah, I just don't get it. <laughs> so yeah, you've got you've got all the Wi-Fi and all the capability, and you just can't log into the work Wi-Fi at, at home. Exactly, and they're, and they're exactly. able to control a, a Martian rover from millions of miles away. Yeah, it's 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 um it's it shaming, is, really, isn't it? It is shaming. <laughs> it is shaming. But alas, you know, hopefully, when we hear these stories, somehow I can gain some motivation back, um, and you know. So firstly, what really took my attention this week, um, and it happened probably while I was in my sixth Zoom meeting of the day, um, I see that the European Space Agency and NASA um, have a joint project um, called the Solar Orbiter Probe. Um, It is, it's gone all the way to the sun and it has taken the closest photo of the sun ever with, you know, the best sort of, resolution and best picture image that we have ever had of the sun it'd be it'd be really hard not to overexpose it <laughs> would be getting up that close just, oh no we left the shutter open to too overexpose well. it. oh no we got the visible light oh gosh we're all blind <laughs> um Yeah, so, yeah, as you can imagine, I'm in a Zoom meeting looking at pixelated faces on my screen and um, there is an image of the sun taken from um, the solar orbiter. Um, But seriously, you should take out, you should check out the photos. We'll put them up on, um, put them up on our website as well. Um, They're beautiful and they will not cause eye damage like normal sun viewing does. So what, what, um, what spectrum of radiation did they take photos in? I think they took photos in the infrared spectrum. Yes, okay. I believe so. Um, it has been uh, revealed that the solar orbiter um, has revealed sort of like that the sun has this sort of landscape of thousands of these tiny little solar flares that they haven't really been able to articulate in an image before. Um and they've come up with this great new name for these tiny little sort of like really powerfully bright um, solar flares and they've called them um, campfires. Yeah, right. which is an adorable name. Love it. Yeah, it is. yeah, great. Um, and these campfires, you know, they're probably not the type you want to roast a marshmallow on. They're a few um, million degrees. Uh, but they will offer up clues about the extreme heat of the outer, uh, sort of like the outermost part of the sun's atmosphere. Um so these campfires, uh, 
the researchers believe they're tiny explosions called nanoflares um, and suggest that maybe it's these nanoflares that explain why the, why the outside of the sun, um, which is called the corona, um, yeah, just to bring it back to corona there, uh, is three, <laughs> so the outside of the sun is 300 times hotter than the star's surface which is sort of doesn't make a lot of sense, but they've, they've sort of been wondering why and they think that it's because of these, um, these nano flares, these campfires. Does, is, the, is the probe equipped with marshmallows to test out? Well, you know, I mean, a solar orbiter needs to snack on something, doesn't it? <clears throat> yeah, 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 I think so. Um, so this is a very exciting news to the little solar orbiter. Um, it's just really starting its mission. It was launched in February. Uh, just before coronavirus lockdown, much of the control center. Uh, so you can imagine many of their key staff have had to start operating this mission from home. So they are literally uh, operating a solar orbiter to the surface of the sun. Well, not the surface of the sun, but closest, close to the sun uh, from home. So, yeah, I don't know if that makes you feel great or depressed, but um, <laughs> there it is. Hey, look, you know... I've often heard it said that, you know, people landed something on the moon with less computing technology than I carry around in my pocket these days. So it's good. It's good that they can run these missions from home, I think. It is wonderful. Um, Now, the second story I want to tell you about is a planetary finding that came out this week. Um, Now, you see, I've been glued to my phone for the last four months, obsessively reading coronavirus news, Um, whereas these scientists... These uh, have been obsessing over Corona on Venus, as in the planet Venus, Stu. Another kind of Corona. Another type of Corona. Um, So let me back up a bit here. Now, it was commonly thought in astronomy circles that Venus is a geologically dormant planet. So, um, you know, not much going on in the way of plate tectonics and magma activity. And they thought it had been that way for half a billion years. Um, But that was all blown out of the water like a submerged volcano this week um, when the scientists published research that identified around 37 volcanic structures, um, which they call um, corona, you guessed it. Um, And they, they found that these corona are recently active and potentially still active today um so these cor- so by by recently how recent they, do they mean, mean like potentially one to two million years which isn't that you know when you're talking about half a billion years that they were thinking you know it's 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 small it's small in geological time one one or two billion years it's loose change in geological Yeah, time. sorry, one or two million years, not one or two billion years. Um, yeah. yeah, so the corona are essentially these big circular areas um, that include fields of lava flows and these big faults. Um, and the researchers used radar images of Venus, which, was, which were taken from uh, the Magellan spacecraft, which was a NASA spacecraft in the 1990s, and they took these old images to examine... Um, examine these corona all over again for volcanic activity. Um, now, as you can imagine, just like all land and rocks on Earth, we've got um, some that are very, very old 
um, very, very old rocks and some that are relatively new, uh, created by volcanoes from, you know, the up, the upward movement of rock from um, under the ground onto the surface. Um, and the researchers were really examining um, these sort of like corona areas to look for this upwelling and some of the sort of geological telltale signs that the corona had been active recently um, and found that, yeah, there were at least 37 that were most likely still geologically active. Uh, so that's that's pretty amazing. That's sort of a real, a, quite a large shift in the way that we see Venus um, and just happening in the middle of lockdown. So, yeah, fantastic. Um, now, the uh, they have they have actually they've actually landed on Venus before. So this is this is sort of a jump in understanding of Venus, which was probably unexpected. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a um, I'm not a astronomer but i can't yeah it's it it seemed like uh this came totally out of the blue and is and is quite a quite a big paradigm shift for people working in that field and our understanding of venus in general um now the third out of this world update involves a mission to mars so on july 20 which wasn't that long ago uh, i was sewing together face masks um in the United Arab Emirates, they became the first Arab country to launch a space mission to Mars. Which, wow! I know it's it's amazing, huh? Um, the mission is dubbed Al Amal, which in Arabic means hope, and it was launched from Southern July, yeah, on July twenty. So, it um, it was a successful launch. Um, it's separated. And um, I also love that it would have been the first countdown in Arabic, um, which is which is awesome to think as well. Uh, now it's remarkable, I think, for a number of reasons. You know, managing to work globally at this time is pretty amazing, anyway. But to launch a Mars mission in the middle of a global pandemic is, um, you know, something to be very proud of. Uh, the other reason it's so special is because. It is the first space mission by UAE. They hadn't, they hadn't sort of ventured into space before this, and now they're going to Mars, um, and that's pretty cool because there aren't many countries that can say that they have Mars missions. It's only China and the USA, and now the um, UAE, and they did it with a team of local Emirati staff, most of who are under 35, um, and with a deadline of, um, which is being reported as around four years shorter than most comparable missions. So um, it was quite a big feat. Uh, and the mission seems to be underpinned with a drive for the nation to really move away from, you know, what they're, uh, what they're known for in their oil and gas exploration and um, towards space travel and inspiring young Arabs to do science and, you know, have more adventurous endeavours, uh, which, which can only be a good thing in, um, in my opinion. So the Mars mission is due to reach Mars's orbit by 2021 and Alamal will study the Martian atmosphere when it's there, gather data to generate the first sort of big picture model of the planet's weather system and a better understanding of the atmospheric composition and ongoing climate change of our neighbouring planet. Um, so yeah, there you go. Three out of this world 
uh, space science stories uh, for you to think about. Um, and yeah, I think now that I've now that I've you know had some time to sit with them, they um, they they're going to help me through the next little while while I think about the future of humanity and yeah, certainly motivate me, you know, to be a better human. Alright, we've come to the end of another episode of Still Locked In Science. We are still locked in, but we're still going to bring you all the science uh, every week for half an hour. Lost in Science is usually recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, but at the moment from the homes of the presenters themselves. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can contact us by email. We are lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter, or you can just tune in next week when Chris, Claire, and Stu get locked in.